0: Welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Liz Kelly. Fresh off of Talk the Thrones, The Ringer is introducing a new live Twitter aftershow covering season two of HBO's Big Little Lies. Immediately after each episode, The Ringer's Amanda Dobbins and ESPN's Mina Kimes will be going live to give their initial reactions and break down everything we saw in the episode. And to kick us off, there'll be a special season two preview airing on Friday, June 7th at 12 p.m. Pacific. So join Amanda and Mina for Big Little Live every Sunday on Twitter. Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of The Recapables Billions edition. I'm your host Alison Herman and I am joined as I have not have been for a couple weeks but we are so glad to have him back. It is Ringer staff writer and number one Wags fanboy Miles Surry. What's up Miles? Hey, I'm glad to
1: be back. I thought you guys were done with me like the podcast version of Pimp Rule 101.
0: Listen, we're like Axe. When you're in the circle, you get special treatment, and you are very much in the circle of the Recapables Billions. This podcast truly could not exist without your enthusiasm for the going on at Axe Capital and, to a lesser extent, the New York State Attorney General's office. Um, As we mentioned up top, this was— the second-to-last episode of the entire fourth season of Billions, which is hard to believe. It feels like only yesterday when Axe was just starting to wage his war against Taylor and hooking up with Rebecca Cantu. This episode is called Lamster. It was written by Adam R. Perlman and directed by Neil Berger and Matthew McLuda. And I thought it was a really enjoyable Episode of Billions. It didn't quite feel like a scene setting episode, even though that's obviously what it was. But just to start, what was your tweet length review of what we just saw?
1: So it's like me and Roxanne. When Billions gets down, it doesn't fuck around.
0: I deeply resent <laughs> you reminding me of that exchange and the implied imagery. Much like we shan't forget. <laughs> much like Chuck himself, I'd really did not need that image in my head, much less on my screen, but this is billions. This is what you sign up for. My tweet-length review was just, why have love or even money when you can have sweet, sweet revenge? Because this episode saw Axe do a much higher, or I don't know, much more like dramatic version of what we've already seen Chuck do, which is Chuck just didn't help his wife and Axe decides to basically go to war against his own significant other because he is more interested in prosecuting this feud he has against Taylor than letting sleeping dogs lie and everyone moving on to bigger and better things, which I think is an interesting bit of parallelism between our two leads. I don't know. Maybe does not say the greatest things about them as people, even though they are clearly two peas in a pod. Are,
1: are characters on Billions morally bankrupt? What?
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's hard to believe. It's more just like, I cannot believe if you're axed and you've just gone through a messy divorce from, like, the mother of your children and you finally meet someone who actually understands you and is your professional peer, and then you just immediately decide to junk it, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it makes sense in the macro, but is slightly disappointing in the micro. I will be sad to see Nina Arianda leave if that is, in fact, what we are headed for, which it certainly seems like it. I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting because um, e- even though this was a really good episode, it's kind of like the opposite of what a penultimate episode of Thrones is like, you know, when you get like the Red Wedding or something like that. This one's just, there's a lot of things where we're just going to wait for the shoe to drop uh, in the finale, which... Uh, yeah, for for Sailor's uh, department stores and Rebecca Cantu's relationship with Axe, it's not looking good.
0: Yeah, I don't know if this is the first time we've seen Sailor's sign or logo, but that is an extremely blatant Sears ripoff if I've ever seen one. It is not ambiguous what this is supposed to be based on. But yeah, as you mentioned, Billions really likes a finale finale. This is a lot of sort of setting up for that, and so that means that there's a lot of plot to get through. So that means it's time for our 60-second plus or minus 20 or 30 plot summary that I will just get right to, which is... The Chucks realize they are being bugged, which puts Team Rhodes into fight-or-flight mode. It turns out the plan is to nail Jock on election rigging, but first, Chuck enters a race with the Connerty brothers to recover incriminating documents from his father's safe and loses. Things only get tougher when Chuck turns to Sacker for help, and she immediately rats out his game plan to Jock for a post as head of the Civil Rights Division. Also, the FBI interrupts a Broad City binge to drag Chuck Sr. into custody. Wendy decides to absolve herself of her sins by confessing before the medical board, which makes her feel better, but also Axe maybe loses some respect for her. Taylor tells their employees they can max out their comp packages if they keep their money in the firm fund for a year. Everyone accepts, except for Lauren, ostensibly because of her relationship with Taylor. Finally, Axe's vendetta against Taylor leads him first to break his own bylaws so he can bail out his girlfriend to the tune of $2.5 billion, against the advice of literally everyone he knows, and then betray his girlfriend when she brokers a truce on her own. Whew. Okay. So maybe we can just springboard straight off of that into the MVP of the episode. We had a few candidates. Miles, who was yours?
1: Uh, so mine was Wendy. I-, I feel like this episode there maybe wasn't a, a clear MVP, especially because so much is being set up for the finale. But um, I'll go with her because I think, you know, in the back half of the season, uh, she's really been confronting her own manipulative behavior and whether she is, as Mafi put it, a garbage person. Uh And I think it was uh The Ringer's own Kate Nibbs who wrote last season that she's, like, the show's, like, kind of biggest villain. But I-, I think that, yeah, Wendy's willingness to accept the suspension of her medical license at least indicates she's trying to point her nor- moral compass north again. And, you know, for the standards of the show with so many morally bankrupt individuals, I guess that's a promising start. And it will be interesting to see what direction the character takes if, you know, for a little while she's not manipulating her husband or work husband for a bit.
0: Yeah, I still think it's a little strange, the line in the sand that Wendy is choosing to draw. Like, she knows that she is employed by a firm or a partner in a firm that engages in literally illegal activities. I don't know. I mean, I think I I respect what the show is trying to do with the character and having her come to this moment of reckoning. I think it also knows that, like, her logic is not necessarily the most even. Like, as Chuck brings up, he brought her a deal that would have involved accepting some culpability and taking some time off, and she refused and lashed out at him. And then she ultimately decides to basically do an even more extreme, even more consequential thing you know, obviously she had the conversation with Taylor in between, but it's a little, I guess, inconsistent in terms of her self-image and how she squares that with where she works and who she works with. My candidate for MVP was just a tie between Connerty and Sacker, which I do not think will hold into next week, but I do think the show is allowing them one last victory. I think Sacker has probably the better chance of holding out long-term, but for the moment, it seems like Connerty's Dr. Gus sessions are really paying off in his favor.
1: I also just love that he just so happens to have a, a very Irish brother who's his, his thing is he knows how to crack safes. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the whole like laying it on thick. There's like a reference to a priest. It's a reference to their mom being alcoholic. It's like every yeah. shallow stereotype. Oh, and of course stereotype. they hate Bill
1: Belichick. Like,
0: oh my god, I that mean, was, they're from
1: Staten Island or whatever. I would just
0: like to personally say, <laughs> as a moment of growth, I'm so proud that I understood that reference and the various regional loyalties implied by it. I would not have <laughs> understood that before I started working at this company, and you know, I don't. Really follow sports still, but I can at least understand the casual references that are put in the TV shows that I also watch for my job. So, you know, progress, doing great there.
1: Shout out the Ringers NFL coverage.
0: (laughs) Yes. But what was your take on... Where do you think we're going to find Connerty and Sacker next week? How do you think they fared this week?
1: So I think the biggest thing with with Connerty's whole plan is, obviously, it was executed well. You know, there was that little moment where it's like, oh, is his brother going to leave the tray, like, at the scene <laughs> of the robbery? But then he he brings it back. But I, I just think it's so odd that um, the Rhodeses would leave a paper trail for this sketchy deal. It just feels like... You know, there's a reason that they left it there, and it, and I think it might have been planted. I don't know if you're feeling yes, the same Yes, it has been
0: floated yeah. to us by certain uh, listeners to the show and Twitter users. Guys, thank you for sending all your feedback and your theories that this was definitely a paper trail. I certainly think it seems a little too easy and a little too— I don't know. Like, I don't think Connerty is going to end up being a better strategic thinker. And I certainly think the plan was to provoke him into fully crossing the line. Again, I I think the show kind of picks and chooses its spots just in in terms of what kind of story it wants to tell, in terms of, like, how principled each character is. Like, I still don't fully buy Connerty going from idealist who hates Chuck Rhodes because he's corrupt to, like, full-on collaborator with Mr. Jeff Tillerson or whatever. And Sacker is also a little... I think they sell her more convincingly as someone who's just as, like, self-interested as she is idealistic. She just doesn't want to go all in on corruption because it, it means getting herself dirty and liable, and she apparently wants to go into public office, it was fun to watch her get to be a full power player and play the double agent or triple agent or whatever. I think her loyalties will be clearer next week, but I know you had one last candidate for MVP that we should probably address before we move on.
1: Yeah, gotta give a shout out to Tyga, the yoga instructor. That would also be Ira's new wife, who spent upwards of 30 hours in labor, labor yoga delivering champion. their first child.
0: Which I was not aware that yoga is competitive. I thought that was kind of against the point. They're covered on
1: ESPN too. (laughs) It's it's really intense. I, I won't pretend to understand what childbirth would actually feel like, but 30 hours is a lot. So congrats to the happy couple for pulling through.
0: Yes, it also enables the very fun visual gag of Chuck conducting all of his business because Ira (laughs) is an important deputy in like the birthing suite of whatever incredibly luxurious New York hospital that all of this is taking place at. Also, shout out to Tyga for having her priorities in check because as soon as she is given birth, the first thing she says to Ira is that we need to get on wait lists for preschools immediately, which is some... Absolutely real New York child-rearing shit, but, you know, shout out to her. She's She just, like, wants her child to be well-educated. That's a relatively thin field for the MVP. Wendy has kind of cleared her own conscience. Connerdy and Zack are making moves. Tyga is a new mother. But there's, <laughs> I think, stronger candidates for the LVP, kind of as always on Billions. Maybe you're not losing monetarily, but you're always losing morally on this show. So who is your candidate for LVP?
1: So I'm going to go with, uh, Rebecca Cantu, just kind of looking ahead to, to what could be going down in the finale. Like you saw X's face after she told him she brokered a sailor's deal, deal with, um, with Taylor. She was like, come on, let's chill. Let's pour ourselves a drink. And then Damien Lewis made that kind of pouty face where his super tiny lips shrink <laughs> even further beyond human comprehension. <laughs> and that can only the mean one thing. The small mouth
0: of rage.
1: <laughs> the small mouth of rage. So you, you like, like, anyone who watches Williams is like, oh, yeah, Axe Ax is pissed. He's going to do something about this. And uh, obviously, uh, he won't let his feeling. It, it doesn't seem like he'll let his feelings for Rebecca stand in the way of getting some more revenge.
0: Yeah, it's funny because we meet Rebecca as someone we are told has a sterling reputation. I initially predicted that the fissure between her and Axe might be like she is more on the straight and narrow than he is. But it turns out to be more—she's not usually— accustomed to being in this kind of all-out brawl. She's like, before I met you, I just went about my business, and now I have to deal with being in the middle of your grudge, and I'm happy to do that because I care about you, but you need to be willing to bail me out because I'm only in this because we're in a relationship, which I think it's funny that this episode She behaves totally rationally, as does basically everyone except for Axe, who, spoiler alert, is my LVP. Like, everyone else is like, this is dumb. It is a waste of our resources, as has been said repeatedly earlier in the season. But I think it takes someone like Rebecca to really, like, force it. So they broker a truce because it's just not a valuable use of their time. And Axe is the only one who can't let it go and is just— You know, going against his coworkers, going against his own bylaws, going against his most trusted counsel, going against his significant other. And just, you know, he says he sees the whole field and he's not exclusively focused on revenge, but that's very clearly what's happening here. And, you know, I think we're definitely due for a reckoning on that front. I thought, I remember doing like the season finale predictions for this show or this season last year, and people thought, you know, Taylor was going to become a proper villain, and that is not what's happening. It's Axe is just becoming the worst version of himself, which he says Taylor's a formidable foe because they force you to abandon your principles and do things you wouldn't normally do. And I think that was a little telling.
1: No matter what it is, it's never a good sign when all your coworkers need to stage an intervention in your office. If if people you know did that at at the ringer, I, I think you'd probably have to consider your choices. <laughs>
0: Miles, you have been posting a little too much New Pope content. I think you need to chill out. Yeah, you know,
1: between that and John Wick, I just have nothing else. Listen,
0: we're all excited to see Marilyn Manson and John Malkovich in the same room. And
1: Sharon Stone.
0: We just, we need to conserve our energy until 2021 or whenever we're going to be blessed with this show. Or is that later this year? I don't know.
1: Uh, I don't think they've announced, but, you know, New Pope Recapables, it's happening. Book it.
0: Absolutely. Anyway, um... (laughs) Obviously, it's not a great sign that Axe is literally, like, breaking the rules that he laid down in order to ensure that his firm is profitable. And even Rebecca can't do is like, I understood. I asked for too much. I don't actually want you to do this. I'm prioritizing our relationship, which, again, is, like, a better move. She's like, I don't like what this is doing to us. This is too much tension. I'm going to save you a lot of money. And the fact that he's resenting her for that is just— Clearly, some priorities are out of whack, but— Speaking of priorities being out of whack, it is time for our least favorite segment, but the one we must suffer through every week, the most scarring moment. As always, I think there's really only one true candidate, but (laughs) Miles, would you like to summarize?
1: Yes, that would be Chuck Sr.'s little sexcapades with his uh, side chick, Roxanne, who is also raising their child. That f***ing sucks.
0: Oh, the amount of goddamn pot these little girls smoke. <laughs> Back in the day, they'd have been called grasshoppers. Oh, <laughs> well, they're exaggerating a little. Me, I never liked to get too stoned. Only enough to make you want to fuck. Oh, you just need a nice sativa blend. Oh, what? A little sweet and encouraging that he appears to be pursuing a genuine relationship. No,
1: that's that's true. <laughs> I was gonna say like if he's gonna keep having affairs with Mama Rhodes, at least it's with the mother of his new infant son. But but obviously any sex scene involving Chuck C- Senior is immediately scarring.
0: Remember, it's the infant daughter because he doesn't expect oh, things of daughter. her like he does of Chuck, which is also gross and sexist. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just the. You know, the sight of them, like, jogging through his apartment is gross. Him telling her prime me baby is gross. I believe those are poppers that she whips out. I could be wrong, but it's also hilarious that they do sex drugs and then he doesn't know what a sativa blend means and is also shocked that (laughs) girls smoke pot, which, spoiler alert, it happens.
1: Yeah, no, Chuck, uh, well, you know, maybe four seasons of Broad City will do it for him.
0: Oh, yeah. Maybe he'll—I mean, he'll probably have time, considering that he may well be on the verge of being in federal custody. But, you know, we'll find out more about that next week. But, yeah, on the other end of the Rhodes generational spectrum, the, like, gallery of rogues that Chuck (laughs) assembles in this birthing suite of just awful people that we've seen him do favors for, including, you know, get someone out of, like, killing a dog kind of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So— They're all just awful. I don't know, actually, if we've learned all of their names at certain points. But, yeah, like, he makes a joke about killing a horse that this dude does not understand as a joke. That was not great. Yeah, he's
1: just like, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) Immediately. Yeah, and Chuck is like,
0: what are you talking about? That's not actually what I want you to do. That also, like, wouldn't do anything to help what we're trying to accomplish. But... My collective most scarring moment is that Billions has always been very frank that almost all of its leads, in addition to just being generally morally degenerate, are also just like virulent sexist. This is a very, very masculine world. And even though everyone refers to Taylor by their proper gender pronouns at all times, there's a lot of aggressive attitudes running just beneath the surface. And there was a lot of like really open misogyny in this episode, which, you know, is obviously something that I'm sensitive to, but, you know, you can't really ignore wags telling wendy that she's the only woman he likes drinking with um dollar bill having that incredibly gross analogy about you know like tiring sex workers out until they're no longer useful and then finally in the birthing suite ira lets slip that the gynecologist is a woman and they say oh you trust that and someone (laughs) says we all have to pretend that we do And Chuck has that look on his face of, like, I can't believe who I'm choosing to associate with, but also I will continue to do so for the foreseeable future because I have no real morals. And I love seeing Paul Jabadi squirm that way, but also just gross.
1: He did have the perfect response, though. Well, back to the present century and the magic of childbirth aside.
0: Yeah, that's uh, good for him for moving the conversation forward. But, you know, if the true most scarring moment doesn't belong to Chuck Senior, which it really does, but the always runner up in this category is going to be Spiros. And Spiros gets just like a deliciously punchable moment in this episode as well.
1: When does he not?
0: (laughs) I know, but just the idea of, like, Wendy is dejected. She has just been stripped of her title. She still has her job, obviously, but, you know, she's not in a great place. And Spiros decides the way that he's going to help alleviate this is to come to her with, like, a fake problem that she immediately, because she's good at her job, spies as some bullshit.
1: Yeah, that that acting was as bad as uh, last week when he tried to be a doctor.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, and he didn't know the narcotics are downers.
1: Yep. Nope. Um. Honestly, the only thing he seems to be good for is uh, espresso because apparently it's it's pretty good.
0: And pronouncing like completely normal English words with an absurd Italian accent. Did he need to say professore? He did not. But it also enables one of my favorite lines of the episode where Wags goes to Wendy and is like, this is an actual code red situation. You need to convince Axe not to bankrupt himself. And she says, you're a terrible actor, worse than Spiros. And his immediate and very accurate response is, there is literally no way in which I am worse than Spiros. (laughs) But yeah, just watching that was just very, very tough. And I'm glad that Wendy appears to have hit rock bottom and is on the way to recovery. But, you know... The indignities keep piling up.
1: Well, at least AxCap Cap isn't going to get a compliance corner.
0: Oh, true. Or actually, I don't know. He thinks it's a good idea. So, Yeah,
1: I'm a little worried about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. She may have empowered him a little too much. But yes, she's also very accurate. Like, your problem is that you have no self-doubt whatsoever. Like, this would never happen, which it's good to be aware. But we've arrived at picking knits, our loving dissection of things that may not necessarily hold up, which I know is hard about a show where someone is married to someone who is prosecuting her boss. <laughs> but um, anyway, I know that you had some larger issues with maybe some character choices that happened in this episode.
1: Yeah, it mostly came down to uh, the the fact that Axe needed a, an intervention stage, because I feel like tanking his own hedge fund just to support Rebecca and get back at Taylor seems a touch too far. I don't kind of buy Rebecca's. Uh, it's because we're both involved in this thing excuse that, you know, that's why he's so into it because he's obviously a very impulsive guy, but he's been pragmatic enough to keep his company not just afloat, but super successful since 9-11. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't pretend to also have a firm grasp on any of the financial aspects of the show, but I don't think uh Axe, even in his worst state, would agree to burn, like, literal billions of dollars into a dying business.
0: I don't know. I actually think they have set up, like, the sheer concentration Axe has on this feud and the blinders it's put on him, like, pretty convincingly. Like, I believed he'd gotten himself to the point where... I actually think this episode is really good at isolating Axe's desire to go after Taylor from everything else in his life. Like, we finally arrive at this point where it's not good for his relationship, it's not good for his work, it's not good for his wallet, it's not good for his friendships, and yet he's still working to pursue it. And I don't know. I think that arc has actually been, like, pretty well established. My main nitpick was just the, the whole situation around the safe, which— Obviously, there is a strong possibility that this is planted and that he actually wanted the Connery's to break in. But, like, did he really need Axe's fixer to break into his own father's apartment? Obviously, like, his father's on the run and Chuck can't be seen walking in there. But I feel like there are other contacts. Like, isn't there a housekeeper who just has the keys who he could just be like, yo, like— Make sure Honestly, it was, it was, even
1: even Iris could have done it if he wasn't in the in the Right. Street. Iris
0: is lawyer. Like I didn't really understand the whole need to bring Hall into the fold and um again, like the justice department seems totally fine with cutting corners, but like how is anything Connerty got from that admissible in court? Like I feel like that's just the first thing of like this was locked in a safe. Like there's I guess he could pay, maybe said he got an anonymous submission from someone, but it seems just like very, very easy to unravel that as evidence. Um, so that was like my main nitpick, although my secondary one was all due respect to Humphrey Bogart. But my canonical Philip Marlowe is always going to be Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye. And I think that is maybe slightly more Jamadi-esque if we are being realistic. <laughs> um, please watch The Long Goodbye if you've not. It's so good, the 70s version. My slightly positive reverse nitpick of just praising the show for getting its, its small details right is Axe Rebecca having a power lunch in Midtown East at the Lobster Club, which is the worst neighborhood of Manhattan, is very accurate. <laughs> it is exclusively filled with hudgfen types. It is not a place I recommend spending time. And also, I believe the place where Taylor and Rebecca are meeting might be the uh, women and non non-binary people exclusive working space, The Wing. And if it is not The Wing, it is certainly has the exact same pastel banquette aesthetic. So I'm going to interpret that as a conscious nod to the places where uh, super rich, lean-in feminists would hang out. So shout out to the Billions Location Squad on that one.
1: Yeah, I had to be reminded that Wing was a thing. It's, it's, It's quite something.
0: Well, Miles, that is because the wing is quite literally not for you. Whereas if you are a woman working in media in a major city in America, there is no way that you can forget that the wing exists because many, many people I know regularly work there and post just immaculate Instagrams of the interior decor, which is indeed very photogenic. It seems like a very nice space. I just do not have $300 a month to spend on it.
1: Same, even if I was allowed.
0: Yes. I mean, you have the WeWork, which, what what more could you desire? It (laughs) has (laughs) free coffee. Listen, you have the spa water.
1: That's true. Great spa water.
0: So yeah, now we're going to move into our predictions and check-ins, mostly for the finale. So just how do we think the season is going to close out?
1: So I do think, I mean, I I wouldn't know the specifics of how it's going to happen, but I feel like this will... Uh, be the end of like kind of the the Jock Jeffcoat storyline. I feel like the the key to that will be Sacker, who really uh, like in terms of screen time hasn't had a lot to do this season. And I feel like it all kind of hinges on what goes down in the finale. And as we were talking about before, whether she's like a like a double or a triple agent, depending on how you want to look at it. But I think earning Jock's trust, telling telling him exactly what Chuck's wanted her to do. And then having her become the head of the Civil Rights Department would still let her do the dirty work that Chuck wants her to do. So that could be an avenue for billions in the finale.
0: Yes. I mean, going literally back to back from Chuck, who also just handing Sacker an American flag pin to remind her of her ideals is just the cheesiest move and was never going to work. She also already
1: had an American flag pin on, (laughs) which is even funnier. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. Yeah, but the fact that it just went immediately from that to her turning and running to jog just made me think that was not going to be, like, the final development in Sacker's allegiances. I totally agree with that. And also, you know, the greatest season finale in Billions history to date is obviously the Ice Juice stunt, which was another apparent L for Chuck that turned into a massive W. So I certainly think we are headed for some sort of... Time compressed, TikTok, maybe there's going to be a flash forward, you know, all the fun Billions tricks that it loves to do, I think we're definitely headed for in the finale. Um, I also think that the fact that Connery's brother couldn't resist wetting his sword, to use the metaphor, and stealing a ring from the case, I think isn't also maybe going to come back to haunt him and that, you know, there is proof that the safe was broken into. And that's probably not great for a United States attorney to be doing. Also, like, why was Connery there himself? I feel like he should know to send someone in his stead, but, you know.
1: Yeah, so a- anyone could take a-, a few iPhone photos of, like, some documents. But, you know, that's brotherly love right there.
0: I still also am curious if Wendy is ever going to find out that Chuck had the chance to save her license and chose not to. I feel like that's sort of made moot by the fact that, like, she chose to accept the consequences herself. But it does feel like something that could be the final death knell in the Rhodes marriage, which is in a relatively good place this week. But then she has that moment where she's like, let's not get drinking because, like, then we could start, we might start screaming and shouting. And Chuck is a little like, I didn't think that was going to happen. And she's like, it might. (laughs) So that's, also not great.
1: <laughs> I thought maybe a turning point would have been them keeping the house, but it seems like they've just sort of reverted back to that post BDSM confessional stage where they're just not really talking to each other.
0: Yeah, I certainly think that might be one of the maybe Chuck vanquishes Jeff Coat, who we are reminded is named Waylon. Always fun to hear that said in full this episode. But I think maybe like he gets the final victory over Jock, but then Loses Wendy and has made his peace with that clearly, but like that's obviously a a major shift in the status quo of the show.
1: And I do wonder if they'll ever float the idea of of Axe and Wendy as an actual couple. But I, I I mean, if that does happen, I feel like that's season five and beyond. Yeah,
0: season five of a Showtime show is like when (laughs) stuff starts getting really crazy, and I, I certainly think we are due for that, especially if Rebecca is going to be out of the picture, which it certainly seems like she's going to be.
1: Yeah, well, I was gonna say that that was when Dexter fell off a cliff, but hopefully that doesn't happen to Billions.
0: <laughs> oh God! Um,
1: but but it does seem like the end of uh of Re- Rebecca's.
0: I think Damian Lewis would look great in you know a nice flannel, maybe with a lumberjack. Oh, beard. Oh God! But
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that that's that's how Axe gets over Axe Cap just getting absolutely decimated. He's just gotta to retire to Montana and chop some wood.
0: This is true.
1: Uh, the other thing though that I was. <laughs> wondering is whether we're ever going to see the Rhodes or Axelrod children again because we we saw the Rhodes kids a couple times, but I don't think we've seen the Axelrods since uh, they were playing some Little League in season three.
0: Oh yeah, they're gone forever. I also saw, I do not remember who exactly tweeted this. You know, I follow many people who are equally enthusiastic about Billions on Twitter, but someone was like, you know, Chuck and Wendy seem to have their shit together, but who is going to cure them of their psychosis of believing that they have children? Because we have no <laughs> evidence that, like, they actually exist at this point. Like, Chuck Senior was like, I spent some FaceTime with my grandchildren. They're very nice and polite. And it's like, did you, though? <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, if Billions go season eight, you know, Dexter Lumberjack seasons and beyond, these kids are eventually going to broach high school age. So maybe someone's going to be a fail son.
0: Or we're just headed for like a sixth sense type reveal where it's like we've all been hallucinating that you have children these this whole time because they actually all died in a tragic accident. And that's like the hole in these people's souls that has been motivating them this entire time, unbeknownst to them. But, you know,
1: that sounds a little this is us, but I- I'm I'm with it.
0: Once we get to season nine or ten, you got to think outside of the box. But anyway, we're going to close out with just a round of quotes. I thought this was like a very quotable episode of Billions, even by the standards of this show. So we just have a lot of highlights to run through really quick before we go out for the week. Miles, would you like to get us started?
1: Sure. So first I'll try my jock voice for this exchange. Oh, God. You find his wrinkly fucking ass. To which Carnegie replies... (laughs) I saw it once, and actually, the old guy keeps it together. Still, I take your point. (laughs) Uh, Props, I guess, to uh, Jeffrey DeMunn. Uh, Unfortunately, Billingsview Public knows exactly what he's talking about because we saw that scene.
0: Oh, true. Just, I'm going to move past that. When Taylor walks out and announces their compensation scheme, they announce it's the time of year that you've all had circled on your calendar since the time you hopped aboard, and Mafi, that beautiful, (laughs) stupid idiot, says, but Royal Rumble was two months ago. Also— 30
1: enter, only one Yeah.
0: We should actually maybe take just a moment to talk about Taylor. Um, How did you read Lauren's decision not to express faith by keeping her money in the fund?
1: I— I just don't believe it would be for sentimental reasons. So I wonder what she has up her sleeve. Could she be like a super stealthy Axe Cap sleeper agent or something? I I mean, it's hard to tell, especially because they laid out um, Sarah, kind of the WAGs equivalent of her office, as someone who also had feelings for Taylor. So I feel like that could blow up and be a bit messy too.
0: I also couldn't tell if Taylor's response, you are so good, was meant to be like a little double-edged. I couldn't tell if that was them being legitimately like, yes, I appreciate this, or if it was them kind of saying, okay, like, I see what you're up to. You're very good at manipulating me. Maybe I should change some things because they also close out the episode with Sarah praising them for choosing to kind of give up on the Axe Cap Trench War. And it seemed like a little bit of a realignment from Lauren to Sarah was happening, but I also think that's something we're going to see a little more of in the finale.
1: Yeah, I mean, if if Sacker's like a double agent on the sort of like, attorney general side of things, I guess that could be, like, an interesting parallel.
0: Yeah, I talked about this with Kate last week, but I don't really love Lauren as a character. I don't think she has incredible on-screen chemistry with Taylor. And I also don't think her characterization makes a lot of sense, just in terms of her mannerisms and stuff. But, yeah, we should probably get back to the quotes.
1: So I'll go with um, Chuck talking to his uh, lackeys at the hospital, I myself will be doing my usual boogie, inducing mistakes through temptation, misdirection, obfuscation, and conflation slash corruption of the ideals that built this great nation. For good and noble purpose, of course. To which everyone in unison says, oh, of course. <laughs> uh, incredible exchange.
0: There's just a lot of uh, great moments from that exchange. There's also when he says some someone's job is going to be soliciting a bribe, so they can catch someone, you know, accepting a bribe. Yeah. He goes, how would I go about soliciting a bri-? And then Chuck just cuts him off by going, uh-huh. <laughs> on to the and next one. <laughs> on, which was just, I thought, really incredible. I also really loved, before the medical board hearing, uh, Axe's on-staff lawyer says, I can't tell you to lie. I can only tell you there's no way for them to prove it, and it's the perfect solution to all your problems. Which is just great lawyering, you know? Great legal advice. The, the Yellow King... Um I'd call him for some help. (laughs) God. Anyway, there's also when Wendy emerges uh, and it becomes clear that she has chosen to basically relinquish her license, Wag says, this changes nothing. Everyone acts cap is and will remain deeply fucked in the head, which is just, (laughs) just the kind of thing you want to hear about all your colleagues who are responsible for your paycheck.
1: Yeah, super uplifting. So this was Chuck Sr. commenting on Broad City. The amount of goddamn pot these little girls smoke back in the day, they'd have called them grasshoppers.
0: Is that like a legitimate old-timey slang word for women who smoke pot? Or is that just Chuck Sr. being Chuck Sr.?
1: I'd have to ask my mom, who definitely smoked pot. Uh, although she's actually doing like a neat pray love thing in Italy right now, so shout out mom. Hope you're enjoying Florence.
0: <laughs> yeah, that might actually be greatly enhanced by some pods. So I hope she is That's enjoying true. herself. We talked about the Bill Belichick reference. I also really loved that um, Wags bursts into Chuck and Rebecca's heart to heart and says, "You know, oh no, this uh, you know, appliance manufacturer is about to be publicly outed as practitioners of slave labor," and. Axe's first response is like, well, maybe, just like, how can we hedge this? How can I, you know, basically be okay with blatant labor abuses? And then Wags corrects him, child slave labor, temple of doom shit, to which Rebecca's (laughs) like, well, he said temple of doom. We're, like, truly fucked. So, you know, just a great demonstration of everyone's pop culture mastery and also complete lack of ethics and uh, care for you know, people's well-being.
1: Would this be a bad time to say Temple of Doom is my favorite Indiana Jones movie?
0: (laughs) I mean, it would because it has definitely aged the least of a franchise that has not aged especially well overall. I'm definitely, I'm a Last Crusade head myself, but you know.
1: I just like it when when blockbusters get weird. But
0: listen, how is someone drinking out of a cup and dissolving into dust not weird? Just
1: I mean, isn't that just the classic myth of that uh Holy Grail story? Or 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 am I totally did, I just think like, like, I the visualization history? of it with
0: like full like 80s era visual like cheesy visual effects is kind of what makes it. But, but
1: but you know, it's not a guy getting his his heart, you know, removed from his body and then sent into hell in a cage. But, you know, they're, they're weird movies. I think we can agree on that.
0: <laughs> yes, we can. Uh, Indiana Jones is a very good franchise, and I'm very glad that Chris Pratt will not be helming it. Thank you so much to Harrison Ford for standing Also, shout out
1: him calling him Chris Pine as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just great, great stuff. Harrison Ford is a treasure. I hope he never flies a plane again so he can live forever. I will not be doing a Jock Jeffcoat impression, but I did love when he makes a reference to the— um, Oh, my God. What is it? Like, Carencia? Yeah, Carencia. Yeah, okay. So, makes a reference that neither I nor Connery understood. Connery makes a face. And then Jock goes, God, did they teach a man nothing about bullfighting anymore? Which, no, Jock, they never taught people anything about bullfighting anymore unless they were reading a lot of Ernest Hemingway. Carencia. Place in the ring where the bull feels most safe. Where he draws his full power. Whole afternoon, the Matador's trying to keep him away from there. And if he lets up for one second and that bull finds his carencia. Well, it doesn't matter what went before because a Gorn is coming next.
1: It's a it's a hyper specific one, but uh, it totally makes sense. I have to say, is his is this house just still? Does it have the shit train still flowing through it, or has that did they reach a truce? I forget.
0: I think it's still there. Or no, wait, I don't know how we resolved it because Chuck, you know, blew up the deal. And he says this episode, he must be, like, really committed to rigging elections, which, you know, shout out to current events. That's, like, not too far <laughs> off from the truth of how Republicans have seized power in this country. Stay woke, everybody. But, you know, he does say, like, he's so committed to this that he's willing to have a poop train stuck in his front yard indefinitely. So maybe maybe it's still there. You know, there's a lot of, you know, really disgusting, vivid uh, discussion of yeah. smells in this episode. like when Jock says, do you have any idea what it smells like in prison? And Chuck Sr. wastes no time by saying, is it dick? I'm betting dick. <laughs> you know, fair. <laughs> it's, pretty <Probably> much, right. <laughs> it's pretty much the direction that conversation was going in. It's, it's good to just not beat around the bush at that point. <laughs> then Mephie just continuing to be like a beautiful, stupid gem uh, when the like brilliant math whiz objects to Taylor's Conversation practices goes fuck you math man. If you're such a genius, why can't you count to loyalty? Which is <laughs> definitely, absolutely science. Shout out to Muffy.
1: I love Taylor's reaction to that. They were like my sweet dumb idiot.
0: <laughs> I know. I really, I really just love that. Like he was brought on as their number two, and his entire role this season has just been like do nothing, jeopardize the well being of the entire firm, and offer like complete and total moral support, which. Who among and us can And also could not totally
1: use? fail at a at a fight that he trained for? I mean, you know, oh, he's true. younger than dollar bill. Come on, Mufi.
0: Yeah, but, you know, who among us could not use a Mufi in our lives? And So true. I,
1: final... I might be the Mufi in my own life actually.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good if you're the Mufi of the ringer. That's, like, a good position to be in. You're just—you're around forever because everyone just wants you to validate them. Um, So the final quote that I really enjoyed was, just because I'm not listening to you doesn't mean I don't value you, which is what Axe says to Wendy right after he knows that she is being— she is in a professionally insecure place, and she responds— entirely reasonably yeah it kind of does so um that relationship does not appear to be in the best place even though we have hypothesized it might be heading in a romantic direction so we'll see what happens there
1: cannot wait for next sunday
0: yeah speaking of next sunday is going to be the final episode of both billion season four and this podcast thank you guys so much for listening we are very excited to close out this wonderful wonderful chapter of television see you next week